Thank you, Pastor Jacob. Well, greetings. Uh, this Sunday at Scarlet City, we're starting a new sermon series through the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And the last book in the Bible begins with, with really an iconic phrase. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in the Greek, literally the first term is apocalypsis. The first clause of the last book is apocalypsis Jesu Christu. Well, we translate the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in the original Greek, apocalypsis, where we get the term and idea of the apocalypse. And when you think of the apocalypse, what images and thoughts come to mind? For many, it's the end of the world. And there's a number of apocalyptic movies and, and books. In fact, it's a whole genre, dystopia, the end of the world. The apocalyptic is a whole genre of, of storytelling, whether it's robots destroying everything or um, aliens or natural disasters or just human foolishness. Um, you know, this is a real prevalent. In fact, in a few years ago, there was a number of movies, many uh, stories about the end of the world because it's on people's minds. And with the pandemic, it's it's front and center. And so dystopian books and stories are um, about pandemics and life. It's just on our minds. We feel vulnerable personally and even collectively. But this has also been on the minds of, of many Christians. When you, In fact, when you think of Revelation, probably the first thing that comes to mind with the book of Revelation is the end times. And and even a genre of books that were popularized in Christian culture going back to the 1970s. Uh, Hal Lindsey was an author who wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, where he details, based on, supposedly based on, the book of Revelation, the end of the world. And, and this really launched a whole genre of Christian fiction about the end times. Uh, one prominent pastor and author, John Hagee, he's written a number of books on this, and you may have even heard of some of these. I, I get emails and texts and questions about some of these from time to time. Here's just a sampling, a small sampling of a few of his, of his books. Uh, he wrote The Beginning of the End. He wrote a book called The Four Blood Moons, which supposedly predicted the, the end of the world. From Daniel to Doomsday, the countdown has begun. Earth's Final Moments. And then he has a book he's releasing next week called Earth's Last Empire, the final game of thrones. So clever, uh, Pastor Hagee. Um, so yeah, these have been popularized. And, and probably the most popular, if you grew up in the 90s or 80s, you may have heard of the series, the Left Behind series, and uh, where you had Nicholas Carpathia, who was the Antichrist. You had the Tribulation Force and the, the Rapture and a series of books that were supposedly based on the book of Revelation that detail the, the end of the world. And, and my fam I grew up on family road trips. I remember we listened to some of these books, and they were so entertaining, so fascinating, but also led to so much confusion. Because I, as a, as a teenager at the time, I, I thought, hey, these are based on the Bible, so this is how it what Revelation's about. But as you learn and you read and you hear more, you realize maybe it's not so... Maybe the end of the world as depicted in the Left Behind series and by Hal Lindsey, where you have locusts viewed as helicopters and all this craziness, maybe it's not so literal. 
maybe to read the book of Revelation, like any book of the Bible, when we want to read it literally, we should ask, what does it literally mean? Not, what does it literally say? And so this week we want to begin a sermon series on the book of Revelation, considering what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for them then? And how do we apply it in our life today? And I'm rest assured, I think Revelation is more applicable today than ever. In the midst of this, this season of pandemic where we feel our vulnerability, there's a collective sense that we aren't as in control as we thought that our social systems and structures and our personal well-being emotionally, economically, it, with our health, that there's this, this sense of, hmm, maybe, just maybe, we cannot navigate life perfectly to make it all come together and to flourish and thrive. Maybe in the midst of the chaos of life, we need a hero. We need someone to bring restoration and deliverance and then allow us to consider what does it look like for us to be a redemptive presence in our chaotic world today. That is what the book of Revelation is about. And I can assure you it is applicable in our day and age today now more than ever and not for the reason that Hal Lindsey and uh, uh, John Hagee and others would sensationalize and say to sell good books and make good movies, but for ways that are actually significantly more compelling and more applicable for our lives today. So we're going to start a seven-week series looking at the book of Revelation, seeing what does it reveal. The term apocalypse, the apocalypsis, it means the unveiling. God is unveiling for us a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ in the midst of seeing the chaos of life. And so we're going to take seven weeks to go through this book. Seven is the number of completion. It's, it's a prominent number in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to take seven weeks to see what can Revelation unveil for us today. And if we're going to allow Revelation to unveil um, for us how to see, we need to see Revelation properly. And so this week, I want, to, I want to open up with just the simple question, what is the book of Revelation? How should we see it? How can we read it and handle it correctly in such a way that we can experience the blessing that the author spoke about in the opening verses? And so I want to observe three, um, three, three things that make Revelation unique. What Revelation is for us today. And we'll open in verse 1. Um, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then moving down to verse 4, we see it's uh, from Jesus Christ to this pastor, John. It says, from John to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. You know, Revelation, first and foremost, is a letter. Revelation is an epistle. It's a letter. It's actually the longest letter in the New Testament. And it's a letter from a pastor. Revelation is a pastoral letter written to particular people in particular places, to seven churches, in fact. And these churches are, are named in the next chapters. Uh, John has a mind, and this might have been the Apostle John, or it might have been a different man, but this was a prominent leader in the early church. And he's writing about 90 AD to churches that are experiencing persecution. And that's what a letter, a letter is a personal account. Revelation is not just some generic uh, 
vision for anyone, anywhere. Revelation is particularly a vision from Jesus to an angel through this prophet John to particular people in particular places. And so if we want to read it rightly, we need to understand the particularities that these churches and Christians face, the particular persecution, as it were. Now, one of the things for the people of God, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, from the beginning all the way to the end, there was often conflict between God's people and the ruling and governing authorities. We see this in the book of Genesis and Exodus, where God's people end up in Egypt and they are experience oppression and are enslaved by the Egyptians, and God delivers them. We see this as God's people relate to the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire, and later the um, Greek Empire, and Alexander the Great, and then now the Roman Empire. In fact, when the Gospels of Jesus were first written, you had the first real strong Roman Emperor, Caesar Augustus. He came... Um, he, he came to power in the early ADs, right around the birth of Jesus. And Caesar Augustus was your classic Caesar. This was a man who, who ruled and was popular both among the people and among the ruling Senate. He was a man who expanded the reach of the Roman Empire. Under Caesar Augustus, it, became, it expanded to all the way from Britain to Central Asia down to Northern Africa. And it brought what many consider to be the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, through building roads that allowed commerce and trade to expand through culture expansion. It brought this sense of unity among the empire. In fact, one Jewish historian, Philo, he said, he said this about Augustus, Caesar Augustus. He said, he cleared the sea of pirates and replaced them with merchant vessels. He gave freedom to every city and brought order where there had been chaos. Caesar Augustus brought this strong sense of prosperity and power to the Roman Empire. But other emperors would rise up, and some of whom began an, an intense persecution of Christians, the first of which was a man, Emperor Nero. Nero uh, ruled the Roman Empire from 54 to 68 AD, and the Encyclopedia Britannica sums him up this way. Um, it says he is infamous, his infamous reign is usually associated with tyranny, extravagance, and debauchery. And it's really hard to put in words just how corrupt and evil and psychotic Nero really was. This was a man who had his, his own mother um, murdered. This was a man who had one of his wives murder him. He murdered her, um, supposedly kicking her to death when she was pregnant with one of his children. And then in lamenting her death, he saw a man in the streets who he felt resembled her, and he had that man kidnapped, brought into his royal court, his body mutilated to resemble that of a woman, and then took that man as his wife. This is a man who the, the accounts, if we went into detail, this would not be a PG sermon. He was evil. The, and, and, and Nero saw himself as an entertainer. 
Interestingly enough, it's why the masses liked Nero. Nero would host these grandiose gladiator games, and, and it was a way to appeal to the masses because back then people viewed entertainment as a means of controlling the masses of people. But Nero was not very popular with the Senate. He was not very popular among many because of his just pure selfishness and his willingness to murder absolutely anyone for any reason whatsoever. And this eventually, this, this temperament uh, came to bring persecution to the Christians. In fact, Rome was, much of Rome was burned, and it's debated whether Nero set the fires himself, but in any event, he blamed the Christians, even though the Christians certainly were not responsible. And so many Christians were martyred, many Christians were executed because Nero blamed them for the fires of Rome. So it's a wrong and evil man. And then a few decades after Nero, the, the real second great persecution of Christians was under a man, Emperor Domitian. And he would have been ruling when Revelation was written. He most likely was under his rule when John the seer, John the pastor who wrote this letter, would have been, um, would have been put on the island of uh, Patmos. And so um, this, this widespread Christian persecution rose up under Domitian. And whereas Nero persecuted the Christians as a means of scapegoating and blaming, under Domitian, he controlled the masses by reinstituting the Caesar occult. And so it was required for people to go into particular temples and worship Caesar. And he did this not out of just some vain sense of wanting glory. He did this as a means of manipulation and control, where Nero used uh, entertainment to control the masses, Domitian used religion and the worship of Caesar. And so widespread persecution emerged as a result of Domitian's rule. And this was the experience of churches in, in Western Turkey and Asia that John is writing to. They're wrestling with how do we respond? How do we live? How do we persevere in a world of persecution? Again, thinking of their context, most of these people would have been new converts. These are people who, some who come from a Jewish faith and heritage, but many who are Roman and Greek. And they're trying to think through the implications of now worshiping the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? How does that shape? How do, what does that mean for my Roman citizenship and the, and the, the demand to worship Caesar. So they lived in this incredible pressure. And you can imagine the infighting, the disagreement, and the different views that would have resulted as a case of this pressure that the church was under. But they were dealing with this persecution that people, loved ones, could be tortured and mutilated and, and executed because of their very religious practices. And so John, Revelation is written by a man, John, who is a pastor writing to people. But also we see the nature of this letter, that Revelation is written in a prophetic, apocalyptic form. It has a particular genre, as you will notice when you read it. It is not just simply some personal correspondence, but it uses prophecy and specifically apocalyptic genre to convey certain truths. I mean, looking again at verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants must happen very soon. He made it clear 
by sending his angel to his servant John. You know, I think it's very important right here that we see that revelation is supposed to be clear. It's not supposed to muddy the waters. And in order to understand the clarity, we need to understand the genre. That first and foremost, revelation is a letter, but also it's a prophetic, apocalyptic letter. You know, when we think of prophecy, many of us, the first thing that comes to mind is prediction. A prophet is someone who reveals some truth about the future. But in the biblical account, the Old Testament prophets, many of them, rather than it being just prediction, most often it was declaration. It was revealing God's will. And often it was rebuking God's people for pursuing idolatry or injustice. Interestingly, time and time and time again, the biblical prophets, they, they <laughs> rather than just condemning everyone out here, the Roman Empire, the Babylonians, the Persians, they critique God's people for modeling and perpetuating some of the same injustices that others do. And so there's this regular return to, no, we need to reflect the heart of Yahweh. And so Revelation is prophetic in that sense that it's declaring God's will. But more than prophetic, it's, it's apocalyptic. And apocalyptic was a genre that, that the first readers they would have been very familiar with. In fact, there's apocalyptic writing in other parts of our Bible, in Isaiah, and in Daniel, and Jeremiah, and, and um, Zechariah, and Ezekiel. There's, there's apocalyptic writing, and it's merely the intensification of prophecy using very important images and symbols to convey certain truths. It often speaks in terms of understanding the present in light of the end, understanding the present in light of the future promises of God that will be kept. And so Revelation is this apocalyptic writing, the use of images and symbols to convey very important and powerful truths about God and how he's reigning today. In fact, the term apocalyptic literally means to unveil, to remove the blinders that prevent us from seeing the reality of life through the lens of God's rule and reign in future redemption. But it does this through the use, again, as of Im images and symbols. And, and one pastor, I, I like how he thought of it, he said, why? You know, why not just write, why not close out the Bible with a very, you know, it talks about being clear, with a very simple letter about God's rule. And, and one professor, Dr. Daryl Johnson, who has a tremendous resource on the book of Revelation, he responds this way. He says, they could have. They could have simply written, everything's going to be okay. God rules, hang tough, and you'll be okay in the end. They could have written that. But a apocalyptic literature seeks to go beyond intellect to touch our emotions and imaginations. What, the, what Dr. Johnson is saying is that the point of Revelation is not merely to just convey information, but it's to take that information and awaken our heart and our mind, our imagination. Another pastor and theologian, Eugene Peterson, uh, puts it this way. Uh, he describes apocaly apocalyptic literature as a form of poetry 
He said, I do not read Revelation to get additional information about the life of Christ. And he'll go on. He said, there's nothing new to say on the subject. He would say the Gospels and the epistles of the New Testament, even Old Testament, it's, it's, it's laid out the law of God and the Gospel. He said, there's nothing new to say, but there is a new way to say it. I read Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. Revelation is this beautiful, poetic book that speaks about the truth of God in the past, present, and future using very important graphic and symbolic images that convey the beauty of God's redemptive work. Revelation is a letter, and it is a letter written in the genre of prophetic apocalyptic literature. It uses symbols. But then, you know, what message does it convey? Again, if we uh, can think of ourselves in the midst of the, these early Christians who they're gathering in homes and they're wrestling with the living and the tension of, of experiencing real persecution for their faith. And how does God respond to that world, that very real persecution? Does God send an angel to give John a, a strategy for undermining Roman oppression? How to get people in places of influence so you can change the culture and change the laws? Would have been nice, but he didn't do that. God could have sent through an angel to John to the churches a program for church growth and perseverance and, and how to do the programs in a way that reach more people and how to raise more money and how to do it the right way. Here's the order of service for your church and the strategy for discipleship. Could have done that, but he didn't. How does God respond to this very real and present persecution that Christians face he gives a letter using apocalyptic imagery to share a vision of Jesus Christ. What God wants to know, what's us to know, is that in the midst of chaos, Christ is reigning, Christ is ruling, and Christ will one day return to redeem all things. Revelation is a vision of Jesus' rule and future return. Again, looking at our passage, um, looking down at verse 1, again, from John to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. And then now it's going to go on to describe the Trinity. Look at this. He says, "He who from he who is and who was and who is still to come. This is directly comes from the book of Exodus that describes Yahweh, the Father who rules over all history, He who, who was, who is, and who is still to come. The great I Am. The God who delivered His people from slavery in Egypt, who delivered them from slavery in Babylon and the Persian Empire, will deliver them from Roman Empire oppression. The, the God who was and is and is to come. Then it goes on, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, earlier I mentioned that seven is a prominent number in the book of Revelation. It's the number of completion. And so it uses this term here, not because there's literally seven spirits, but to say the spirit of completion. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit who is needed to understand and grasp 
the, the revelation of God, the Holy Spirit who's needed to apply the truth of who Jesus is in our mind and heart that we might persevere in this world. And then from, in verse 5, from Jesus Christ. From the Father, from the Spirit, and from Jesus. And then it will go on to detail the very nature of Jesus. It says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, that one of the core missions of Jesus is to reveal the will of God, the presence of God, the values of God, the beauty of God, the power of God. From Jesus, the faithful witness, from Jesus, the firstborn from among the dead, that Jesus brings eternal resurrection, that he died on the cross but didn't stay dead, defeated death so that we might live in the hope of his future reign. And, con and concerning that reign, it says, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. You know, pharaohs come and go, Caesars come and go, kings come and go, kingdoms come and go, but Jesus' rule and reign is eternal. But then he talks about the nature of his kingship. It goes on to the one who loves us and has set us free from our sins at the cost of his own blood. You know, in, in John's mind, the imagery here is the Passover, where God provides a lamb whose blood covers the doorpost of his people so that his judgment passes over, that they might be liberated, they might be freed, they might be enabled to live with God and live amongst each other walking with God. And John says, Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. In verse 6, and has appointed us as a kingdom, as a priest serving his God and Father, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What do God's people need in the midst of chaos? They need to see Christ. They need to see Christ ruling and the promise of God, Christ returning. And, and really, they sum it up this way in verse 8 concerning Jesus. And, and it's so interesting because Revelation begins with this description of Jesus and it ends with this description of Jesus in the final chapter of this powerful letter. In verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, the one who is and who was and who is still to come, the all-powerful. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Is Jesus the beginning and end of your life? You know, when I think of living in the midst of this pandemic, where we've almost become, where, where death has been normalized, where this era of social distancing and the emotional and economic impacts that that has on our lives on a global scale many of us as i mentioned before we 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 feel vulnerable not just personally but socially you know there can be times where it feels like the storms of life are not so bad if we have the right boat have the right navigation system we can we can weather this storm but eventually for all of us, we're brought to places where the storm is just too great. To whom do we turn in those moments? You see, to navigate life as if I am the beginning and the end puts all the pressure on me. It begins and ends with me. I'm the only one who can be in 
control here. But what happens when I hit storms, when I hit realities of life that I cannot control? Jesus invites us to look at him as the all-powerful one who, who is the beginning and end of all things. So that in the middle of our origin and the creation of our own personal lives and all of life and the ultimate final destination, he rules. And even though there are times where we do not see it, even though there are often times when we do not feel it, what Revelation sets before us, as we will see in the coming weeks, is that even in the midst of the chaos, Christ is present and Christ is ruling. And one day, Christ will return. Revelation is a letter written by a pastor with pastoral concerns for people. And he writes this vision, he details this vision given by God with images and symbolism to awaken us to the beauty that Jesus is ruling and will return, that the chaos of life will not have the final say. And so I just want to close with with how this opens and, and want to encourage you to consider, is Jesus the Alpha and Omega of your life? Is Jesus the beginning and the end. And if not Jesus, then who? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God who was present in the beginning and will be present in the end and that we can live by faith that you have the world in control so that we don't have to. And God, in the moments where we don't understand, in the moments where we don't see, grant us the peace to trust that you are accomplishing your will, and one day all things will be made new. As we look at this amazing letter, God, I pray that you will awaken our heart and our imaginations to the beauty of your redemptive presence. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.